Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, October 16th, 2020. On today's episode of the show, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the virtual water cooler. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Swai Tranbui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Oh, Hello. So Peter can't be with us today, but we are pressing on without him. So let's just dive right into the what we've been doing section. Chris, what have you been up to? Oh, I just published a new episode of 21st Century Spielberg. I took October off or no, not October, September off. This is October. I don't know where I am or what I'm doing. (laughs) I I took September off. I'm back with this episode. It's on uh, Bridge of Spies and The Post. And then there's only one episode left and then I'm done. So please... Listen, won't you? Thank you. <laughs> what What are you going to do about uh, West Side Story, Chris? Is that part of the next episode? And because that movie's been delayed, right? Yeah. Well, I was thinking that was going to be the 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 series finale since it was supposed to come out in December, but then it got pushed. So I don't know. I think I really think the next episode will be the end, and then it'll be over, and I will never speak of this again. <laughs> <laughs> so no no uh, plans for like a bonus episode when West Side Story comes out, like light up people's feeds one more time, like a year later or something? You know, Ben, who can predict the future? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Uh, okay. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes, and people can, can uh, check out that episode. I would definitely recommend doing that. I'm actually in the middle of listening to it right now. It's very good, as always. Uh, HT, what have you been doing? Sorry to continue the tradition of, um, or the practice rather, of plugging podcasts. And this is less of a plug of our, po- our podcast because Jacob kind of so eloquently spoke about trekking through time and space last week. I just want to say that I love Spock. That's all I've been doing lately is obsessing over Spock. I'm in love. <laughs> it's, I just you will you will hear it eventually if you listen to Trekking Through Time and Space, available on all podcasting platforms. But um, I uh, have just been obsessing over Spock as played by Leonard Nimoy for the past couple weeks. I have even started to dive into watching Spock fan cams, and um, I I need to, I I need a support group or something for I, this is I understand now why. Star Trek created, essentially created the fan fiction and fan community because uh, I'm sure everyone else was as in love with Spock 
as I am. <laughs> He's a legit great character. And that's the thing that I think we get lo- gets lost in pop culture sometimes. That We all know Spock's famous and iconic, but we forget sometimes he's actually legitimately like a miracle of a character with a truly stunning performance from Leonard Nimoy. And it's like it's lost in the noise sometimes. And you're right. He is easily one of the most easy to love characters in all of American fiction. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Jacob summarized. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Well, listen to Checking Through Time and Space. <laughs> All right, fantastic. So let's move into what we've been reading. I read Rebecca for the first time, which is the novel uh, that was published in 1938 by uh, Dame Daphne du Maurier. And this is, I think, my wife's favorite book of all time. And HG, you and I were just talking right before we started recording. This is one of your favorite books as well. Um, really quickly, I'll just uh, give some brief thoughts about this. I really loved reading this novel. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the new film version of Rebecca in just a second. But um, I think the thing I love the most about it is how much it puts you in the head of this character. And it's so interior and you get every one of her thoughts. And it is so um, it's such a subjective story. And it is um, I guess we'll talk about the premise maybe when we talk about the the uh, movie itself. So I don't want to get into too much of it now, but I just, I really, really enjoyed this. I'd been putting off reading it for some reason. I think maybe just because I knew my wife liked it so much and I was worried that like, maybe I wouldn't like it as well. Um, but I, this was definitely up my alley and HC, I know this is like a, a big one for you, right? Yes. Um, sorry, I was eating. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Spring that on you. Mm, yes. Rebecca is one of my favorite books. The copy that I have had since I was a kid is like, dog-eared and the spine is all messed up and it just is I mean you guys know my taste by now it's a gothic romance of the pinnacle of the best variety and uh it's so moody and and atmospheric and um plays so well into uh female desire and female fears um in a way that felt very of the gothic romance and uh, a little modern because it is a more modern gothic romance um, or gothic horror even. And uh, I absolutely love that book and we'll pick it up every now and then and just reread it. Yeah, it's great. It's so it's such an evocative piece of storytelling and the setting of Manderley, which is like this massive mansion where uh, most of the story is set is like so um, just like you can see every nook and cranny of that place uh, in your mind with through her descriptions. And it's so um you kind of like want to live in that world and and in that time, even though the protagonist seems to be having a, a pretty horrible time in it for the most part. So um, that's, uh, I think, a credit to Du Maurier's writing. But um, yeah, the book is excellent. I would definitely recommend it to anybody who's looking for something good to read. Um, and it, yeah, as HG mentioned, it kind of has like a little bit of a horror. I mean, not horror. Horror seems too strong, but maybe like a um, yeah, an ethereal sort of like a atmospheric, a little bit of a spookiness kind of vibe. So it seems like a good time to read it right now, you know, as we head toward Halloween. So uh, that is Rebecca. Jacob, what have you been reading? I started reading uh, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant. This is the book that Martin Scorsese is adapting into his next film for Apple. Uh, it'll star Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. And it is, I'm not done with it yet, but it's, it's exceptionally good so far. I'm about a third of the way through it. And it's the story of a, of a conspiracy and a string of murders against Native Americans in 1920s Oklahoma. And it's one of the most, I don't know how to be, what, what, maybe insane feels like too small of a word <laughs> or too like blunt of a word, 
but it's one of the most insane true crime stories I've ever heard, and it happened and was forgotten about. And I am eager to keep reading. David Grand's one of my favorite writers. Uh, he, he's his long form journalism, his book, The Lost City of Z. He's just he finds such fascinating uh, hooks into nonfiction and pulls you in in a way that I think that most nonfiction writers should be envious of. And Kills of the Flower Moon. I'm excited to see what Scorsese does with this. It is dark, bleak material, and it's very much unlike what he's made before. And I'm, I'm very curious to see how this translates and who will play who, because so far there's not really a, any standout lead characters. Uh, in fact, the lead character is a Native American woman. So I'm very curious to see who they surround the big names with here. Awesome. So that's Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, let's move into what we've been watching. Chris, you and I watched Rebecca. Uh, you wrote the review for SlashFilm.com. So let's start with you. What did you think about this new uh, adaptation of the Du Maurier book? You know, it was fine. Um, uh, you know, because Ben Wheatley was directing it, I was expecting something crazier. Like I wanted him to go crazy, basically. You know, Ben Wheatley directed kill list and a field in England and higher eyes. And, you know, those movies are very, uh, not to sound like the Joker here, but they're very twisted. So I was, <laughs> I was, I was hoping for, you know, something different. Cause you know, I'd, I've seen the Hitchcock. I haven't read the book, but I've seen the Hitchcock movie and, you know, everyone respects the Hitchcock movie. It's the only Hitchcock movie to ever win uh, a, an Oscar, you know, one best picture. So, you know, it's a big deal. And a lot of people were like, ah, how dare Ben Wheatley remake Hitchcock. And he was saying in interviews, you know, this isn't a remake. I'm, I'm adapting the book. So I, I was hoping he was going to do something new with it, I guess. And he really doesn't. And, you know, it's a, it's fine. It looks good. The actors all are very attractive. Kristen Scott Thomas is doing a really good job as Mrs. Danvers. You know, she's really sinking her role, her teeth into that role. But it, it was just so, like, straightforward. I kind of just came away with it, like, oh, all right. Like, I, I, you know, I just, I wanted him to sort of take risks with it, and he really doesn't. And I'm not really sure why. I don't know if it's like, I said this in my review, but maybe he's just trying to prove that, like, I can make normal movies if I want to, you know, just for a, for a change of pace. But, you know, I, I was I was expecting more. So I was a little disappointed. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing, because I believe he got hired to direct the Tomb Raider sequel, which is sort of a weird choice because of the movies that you mentioned that he's directed in the past. And it doesn't seem like he's the type of guy that would step into, you know, big budget, like franchise studio filmmaking. So I was wondering if this was sort of a stepping stone between his more, I don't know, eclectic work and, um, you know, that, that Tomb Raider sequel, which I guess is still in, in the works or something. I'm not sure if they've like, if they filmed that already or when it's supposed to be coming out or whatever, but yeah, I was sort of wondering the same thing. Like, is this just a, essentially like a stylistic exercise for him or, you know, what's going on. And I, I think for the first half of this movie, I was really on board with it. And then they started making some changes from the book that I just didn't necessarily think were necessary. And not that like uh, any, you know, any deviation from the book automatically means that it's a worse decision. Like I, I'm totally open to adaptations, taking risks and taking chances and, and, you know, taking their own swings with a story. But when all of the decisions that are made end up being, you know, just slightly worse than what what is right there in the source material, I have to wonder like why those decisions were made. So I, I found my I found myself for the back half of Rebecca just really going 
okay, but like, why? What, what, what is the purpose of changing this from the already excellent story? And especially like the very end of the book is such a, a memorable, like almost like a holy shit moment. And then that does, it happens in a different way in the, in the uh, movie and sort of there's like a coda after that. That's sort of like, what, what is going on here? And maybe it's because I read the book right before watching the movie. So all of it being fresh in my mind probably didn't do the movie any favors. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm very curious to see what HD thinks as another fan of, of the book. And um, if anybody else like who has seen the uh, Hitchcock version, like what you guys think about it sort of in comparison to that, because it's been several years since I've seen the Hitchcock version. But I don't know. Um, I've been kind of, I feel like I've been kind of put off because of all of the tepid reactions to it and because of Chris's review. I just um, yeah, I have a big affection for this story and I love Hitchcock's version, even if his ending uh, had to be uh, somewhat censored because of the Hayes Code. Um, I think that ev- even then, like, it ends with a very just like striking image. But um, I, I just don't. I'm, I'm so many doubts about it now. I don't know if I want to. Is, is it worth watching at all? Even if um, it, it doesn't live up to the original novel. Uh, what do you think, Chris? Uh, I guess like I, I wasn't bored with it. So there, you know, if you're looking for just something to throw on in the background, I guess it's fine. But you know, yeah, like, I think I mean, like, there, are, there are some standout performances like, um, what is her name? Is it Ann Dowd? Who's in the very beginning? Oh of the yeah. Movie? She's, she's great. She's, she's having a ball with her very, she's a small part, but she's really having fun with it. Yeah. She's a lot of fun. Um, Kristen Scott, Tom- Scott Thomas, as you mentioned, is, is really great as Mrs. Danvers. And I think like, yeah, like you said, Chris, all the, all the performances are good and the cinematography and the production design and like the way that Manderly, this big, uh, mansion is um, is envisioned and, and created um, is really like gorgeous and a lot of the colors and everything took my breath away in the movie but just the the actual story choices and stuff like that sort of um, you know it, it all sort of fell apart a little bit for me at the end but I think there's enough there that you'll appreciate HT even if it's not like a fully satisfying experience um, I think ultimately it's just really tough to make a movie about Rebecca because so much of this story, like I mentioned in the, the, you know, my discussion about the uh, reading the book for the first time is in this protagonist's head. And you, there, I can almost envision a version of this movie. That's like almost like uh, Darren Aronofsky's mother, where like the camera is back over her shoulder the whole time. And it's like, you're really seeing every single event from her perspective. And like, there's, I think narration is something that, uh, you know, we can all probably agree that when narration is used in movies, for the most part, it's sort of a crutch. That's like the the general trope is like the or generally accepted uh, consensus is like, oh, narration, like, man, you, you should find a better way to tell the story than having the protagonist actually say these words aloud. But I think this is one of the rare cases where you actually need that. You need more of um, Lily James's character talking about how she feels inferior in this world where she and in this environment where she has not been brought up uh, brought up and she's not familiar with this this world at all and you need to really like feel how out of place she feels for the story to really work in my my opinion anyway so uh that's rebecca it comes out on netflix on uh, october 21st i think if you want to check that out so um i guess sort of mixed reactions and, and mixed recommendations from me and chris but um brad let's move to you what have you been watching uh, I watched another Hitchcock remake, um, Hubie Halloween. 
I don't know how many of you guys saw the original, but this one is a steep departure uh, from, from that. Uh, no, this is the new Adam Sandler movie um, that's on Netflix, uh, Halloween themed, obviously. And I went out of my way to watch it because some people, uh, including an article that we published on SlashFilm.com, um, I, I don't remember who, who wrote it, unfortunately, I'm sure Jacob can tell me here in a second, but they actually said that this movie was funny. Um, and uh, I just want to say, no, it's not <laughs> Uh, I, I will say I did laugh a few times during this movie. There are some some funny recurring bits and just a few things that I was surprised, like, like just funny jokes that suddenly caught me off guard. But this is just another weird movie where Adam Sandler puts on a goofy voice. And this is one of the voices where you can barely understand what he's saying, too, because he's mumbling all the time. Um, and it's just it has such a weird story and it has these tangents that don't add anything to it, that don't make any sense, like. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal's part in particular felt like it was super shoehorned uh, into the proceedings. And then, uh, you know, you have uh, Julia Garner's character, who is yet another woman who is inexplicably infatuated with one of Sandler's dim-witted goofball characters. Um, And I just, I I don't know how or what, like, Adam Sandler came to this point and, like, why he's been stuck here for so long. Because I've also recently... Rewatched uh, the Wedding Singer, which I talked about in the quarantine stream, and uh, we recently rewatched Big Daddy because I uh, found out that my parents had never seen it, and I love both of those movies, and they are genuinely hilarious. Not even just funny by this is a good Adam Sandler movie standards; they are very good comedies, um, and just movies like Hubie Halloween and Sandy Wexler, which Stephen Brill also directed, they're just so far and away, you know, the kind of comedy that Adam Sandler used to be able to make used to have like characters that were fleshed out and felt real while also being funny. And like, not just these goofy caricatures. And that's not to say that you can't have comedies that have outlandish characters in them, but whatever Adam Sandler is doing with these kinds of movies just continues to frustrate me. And I just, I don't get it. And I I wish that he would do better because I know he can. Well, that's disappointing. That's Hubie Halloween. Is that uh, streaming for everybody right now, or did you see an early version of it? No, it's it's out on Netflix. So if you got a Netflix subscription, you can see it. And, I, and then I will say one of the things that's moderately amusing, but kind of just feels like a crutch, is that there are several references to some of his uh, more loved movies uh, from his past. But it just feels like Easter egg uh, candy at this point so hmm. yeah uh, all right whatever. uh what else have you been watching um i also watched murder on the orient express the uh new version from kenneth Branagh, uh and i liked it for the most part <laughs> except i will say and ben you can probably speak to this more since you've actually uh read the book and, and whatnot is like is it just me or is 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 hercule poirot kind of a dick <laughs> No, he definitely has dickish tendencies, yes. Okay, because, like, I, I the opening scene, I was just immediately not on his side because he's, like, he's, like, making these, the people that work at the hotel he's staying that make these perfect, like, poached eggs for him. And it's like, what are you doing, man? Like, this is, like, it's, like, such, just, like, this, this total pompous dick. Um, and, like, eventually, you know, this idea of, like, why he likes things perfect and his attention to detail, you know, becomes part of his his, his character arc. Uh, but it feels like such a, a, a cheap gimmick and like an attempt to give him an arc. Um, so I, I don't know. But uh, the cast in this movie is is great. The mystery is compelling. Um, you know, it, it keeps you guessing. It has a lot of interesting threads that, that weave through it. Um, it does feel like it's a movie that's crafted kind of in that like classic style of, of murder mystery as opposed to modernizing it. Because it, it does feel a little bit, 
I don't know, I, I guess ham fisted and overacted uh, at times, but but everyone does play into that pretty well, I think. Um, so so yeah, I, it's I, I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what what Death on the Nile brings, especially with a whole whole new cast. Did did you like this, Ben? Uh, I liked the older version a little bit better. There was a version in 1974 that had a ton of incredible people. Like, I guess the, the equivalent of, you know, the great cast for, for that time, Lauren Bacall and Sean Connery and Vanessa Redgrave and Anthony Perkins and a bunch of great people were in it. Um, I I like that version a little bit more. I think this version, it it makes some departures from the book, but again, not, not terrible ones, but just um, ones that I found to be a little bit lesser. I, I appreciate the fact that this new version exists because it will hopefully get people more interested in, in that kind of genre storytelling, which I really like. And hopefully it'll be able to open the door for more people to make, make more sort of murder mystery movies, which I love. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was, there was something a little bit lacking in that version, but that being said, I'm still excited to see what he does with the uh, death on the, on the Nile version as well. So right on, yeah, I have, to, um, I have to watch the classic one at some point. Yeah, yeah, I'll be interested to hear what you think about that. So uh, you've also watched another murder mystery movie? I did. I kept it going. Uh, actually, funnily enough, I, I combined the two things that I, I watched, and I decided to watch one movie that had the, all those things in common. So I watched Murder Mystery with Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston. Uh, and this this is actually uh, decent. I won't say uh, great, necessarily. Um, and I, I would feel bad saying good, um, but it, it is definitely a much more coherent movie and one that feels more restrained as far as the usual antics we've come to expect from uh, Adam Sandler over the past, uh, I don't know, decade and a half or so. Um, it's uh, This one's directed by Kyle Newichek, who is one of the guys behind Workaholics. Um, and it's uh, very much has a knives out uh, setup, except where Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston's characters, they're a couple who are on a vacation and they get caught up in this um, family murder conspiracy after a, a rich patriarch uh, is suddenly killed during his birthday, a party on a yacht, uh, and it all is for inheritance money and, and whatnot. Uh, and it turns into this uh, cross-country kind of chase as they're wrongly accused of being involved in the murder. Um, and it's uh, it's definitely one of the, uh, the more, more funny offerings that Adam Sandler has done uh, recently. Uh, there's some good stuff that comes from the like the the bickering couple kind of antics as they're you know being chased and accused of a crime, uh, and him and Jennifer Aniston have pretty pretty good comedic chemistry. Uh, Gemma Arterton's also also in this, which was kind of surprising to see her hear her doing something like this. Um, but I guess she's not doing tons of other things right now. But uh, yeah, I, I would say solid. It's um you know uh, as far as the the good Adam Sandler movies on Netflix are concerned, the ones that he's made for. Uh, streaming. This is definitely among the the, the top tier. Uh, nice. So so yeah. Feel free to to give that one a whirl if you haven't already. And then uh, I finally got around to watching Russian Doll, and uh, this show is is great. Um, I, I will say that in watching uh, the first few episodes, I I was like, okay, I, I've gotten used to the the time loop premise, but, but like, what else are they? they doing with it and I, I felt myself slowly becoming a little disinterested but then uh the end of the third episode brings uh you know the a, a new twist to the story and then i was sold from there all the way to the end because that twist definitely um really amps it up and makes the story that much more engaging um but i'm very curious as to how a second season will play out because the show's been been renewed for a second season and apparently um uh leslie headland did uh, envision this as a three season story, but I'm just, I, the first season ended 
well enough that I just I wonder how how it's going to go and how they're going to dig into the the time loop concept or if they have a different approach. You know, it may be subverting another kind of uh, subgenre like that uh, in a similar way. But uh, man, Natasha Leone is, is so good in this show. I just I just love her so much. She's always just like effortlessly cool and careless uh, at the same time. And she's just, she's fantastic in this show. Man, I'm really glad that you like this because uh, this is like one of my favorite, uh, I think my favorite, well, definitely among the the top three of uh, like any uh, TV show that Netflix has ever made. I think it's it's so well done. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious, especially now in like the COVID era, if that uh, second season is actually going to happen. Because I, I feel like, Netflix lately has been using COVID as an excuse, or maybe that's just sort of been the the feeling in the room is like, um, you know, it's a way for them to say, all right, you know, on second thought, we're not going to renew Glow for a final season. We're not going to renew, you know, some of these other shows that have been canceled in recent weeks. And they're sort of being able to, they have like the perfect excuse for for being able to do that. So I wonder if they are going to like pull the plug on more, um, uh, Russian doll, but if they do, I, I'm glad that, that first season is as self-contained and as great as it is. So I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then the last thing I watched is uh, I watched Love and Monsters, uh, which is available on premium VOD from Paramount Pictures today. Um, this is a sci-fi teen rom-com, essentially. Uh, it stars Dylan O'Brien from the Maze Runner series. Uh, and it takes place uh, in a world where uh, there's been this monster apocalypse on Earth, uh, and so people have been living underground for roughly seven years now. Um, this isn't a thing where monsters have like come to Earth from space or anything like that, but there was apparently an asteroid that was headed towards Earth, and we used missiles to destroy it. Uh, but the chemical com- compounds that were in these missiles then rained down to Earth and infected some of the uh, insect and animal species and mutated them and turned them into these gigantic monstrous creatures so there's huge ants and giant slugs and uh frogs and like these like worm-like creatures that are like uh lampreys and so but they're like really giant grotesque um and like just severely mutated uh versions of them and so and the vibe of the movie is kind of like zombie land meets meets a quiet place but like it's not trying too hard to be uh, irreverent or funny like Zombieland is. And obviously there's like a wider variety uh, of monsters. But the, the story follows Dylan O'Brien as he decides to venture out from his the bunker that he's in, which a bunch of uh, strangers that he's been surviving with for all this time to finally reunite with his high school sweetheart who they were separated because their families went different ways when like the shit was going down. But now he's decided to chart across um, 80 miles uh, out uh, in the open uh, and this is a world where 95% of the human population has been destroyed by these monsters. So it's very dangerous. And he's kind of um, inexperienced when it comes to surviving. He gets easily scared. And so it, but it's a, uh, it's not like doom and gloom kind of apocalypse. It's um, it has uh, like the upbeat kind of coming of age, you know, teenage kind of uh, comedy and sarcasm to it. And it's, it sounds like a weird um, combination, but it, it works surprisingly well. It has kind of the same, um, I guess the best, like, tone that it strikes is that similar to is probably warm bodies um but it's i was surprised very surprised by how much i really enjoyed this movie it's just it's pulled off so well um it's directed by mikey michael matthews um who he um directed a movie called uh five fingers for uh marseille uh and that's pretty much all he's he's known for but it's um it's just i i, I was very impressed 
by how well this movie managed both the comedic and the dramatic tones and then also the sci-fi side of it. It has very well fleshed out characters. The production design on this movie is outstanding. Um, just the way that they've crafted this world that looks like it, it's in ruins after seven years. But it's done in a, in a creative way too. Like obviously there's overgrowth and vegetation and, you know, places that are run down and everything. But what's cool is like in all these, the establishing shots that they have while Dylan O'Brien's character is out walking around, you always see some kind of change in the environment perpetuated by these monsters. So you'll see like a cliffside that is full of all these cavernous holes. And you might see like the little flicker of like a movement of some kind of uh, monster nearby. And so there, there's always, there's these cool establishing shots that have these things where you can see little monsters like, or well, big monsters, but they just appear, you know, in the distance and just kind of around. So this is like a, a world that is totally now inhabited uh, by these creatures and some are dangerous, some aren't. And it's, yeah, I just, um, I, I wish that this was, this was a time where we could see this in theaters because this is a movie that I think could really uh, kind of become um, a surprise hit. And I hope that people go out of their way to, to watch it at home because it's absolutely worth watching. Uh, and I, I wish I could have seen it in, in movie theaters. Cool. So that is uh, Love and Monsters and it's available for everybody to rent right now. Yeah, it just came out today. Awesome. Uh, I have been watching a movie called The Last of Sheila. Has anybody here seen this movie by any chance? Nobody. Okay. I had never heard of it before. And um, somebody recommended it to me uh, in terms of like all of the, or, or because of all of the murder mystery stuff. I mean, sort of keeping on, in, uh, you know, on track with what Brad was talking about, all those murder mystery movies. This is another one of those kinds of movies. Um, and this person knew that I, I appreciated that kind of storytelling. And man, this movie, I, I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's not like any of the other sort of classic murder mysteries that I'd seen before. This one has a sort of a movie element to it. So people who love movies and are presumably listening to this podcast and who also love murder mystery stuff. I think this is like the perfect Venn diagram for people. So the, the premise of the last of Sheila, which came out in 1973 is uh, it says a year after Sheila is killed in a hit and run, her wealthy husband invites a group of friends to spend a week on his yacht, playing a scavenger hunt mystery game. The game turns out to be all too real and all too deadly. So uh, this woman dies and the husband a year later gets a bunch of people from the film industry who are all friends to come on this yacht. So there's an actress and there's a writer and there's a director and um, a, a publicist. And all of these people are sort of like at the end of their rope in various ways, not really doing great in their careers. Uh, and the idea is for them to get on this on this yacht and uh, play this elaborate scavenger hunt game. And you think that, oh man, maybe the husband knows something about who killed his wife in this hit and run accident. And uh, it, things sort of start unfolding from there and murders happen and people start wondering, you know, what the hell is going on? And it's very entertaining and uh, very 70s. The, the costumes and, and everything are very... Um, I mean, almost laughable, but, uh, but in a great way. And like Ian McShane is very young. A uh, young Ian McShane is in this movie. And I thought it was really wild to see him because, you know, mostly I just know him from Deadwood and, and Game of Thrones and like the, the old era, uh, modern day Ian McShane. I don't think I'd seen him in anything, uh, you know, where he was young. It was sort of bizarre to see him. But Richard Benjamin is in this, Diane Cannon, James Coburn, uh, James Mason, um, Raquel Welch plays the actress in the film. So uh, it's got a, a solid cast and a really, really cool premise. And I would just say stick around until the very end because there are some, uh, you know, as to be expected in a movie like this, 
Um, there are some twists and double crosses and, and sort of like, uh, you know, final speeches that are um, that are definitely worth uh, the price of admission. So this one is um, I had to rent it on Amazon and it was only available in standard def. That's like <laughs> I think this is more of a um, off the beaten path kind of movie for people. So. Uh, I would be surprised if a lot of our listeners have heard of it. But um, I, again, I think it's definitely worth it if you uh, are into that kind of storytelling. Uh, okay, so that's, it's called The Last of Sheila. And then uh, last night, I had quite the adventure trying to figure out something to watch. So my wife and I like uh, fired up a screener site trying to watch a movie that I can't talk about yet. And for some reason, the screener was not there. So I was like, okay, let's watch another screener that was that was there. And the sound mixing on the screener site was so bad that I couldn't really understand what anyone was saying. So we abandoned that like 10 minutes in. And on my DVR, I had DVR this movie called Halloween Town from I think the the Disney Channel. It was like a Disney Channel original movie in the late 90s. And my wife had never seen that. And we we're like, all right, let's let's watch this. <laughs> and the audio was off by like a half of second and it was um i think it was shot in four by three and like pushed in and so the framing was all weird and that was on free form and i was just like i can't i can't watch this this is so bad so then we checked down to this movie from uh 1961 called creature from the haunted sea that's uh a comedy horror movie about um this this thief who decides to kill members of his crew and blame the deaths on uh, this uh, mythical sea creature. And then the sea creature actually comes to life or, or uh, captures the guy and, and starts terrorizing him. It's a Roger Corman movie. And then for some reason I had DVR'd that and it was like, no, when I tried to play it, it was like, I'm sorry, we can't stream this to your device. Like basically you just can't access this, even though you've DVR'd it, you can't do anything. So I'm like, all right, this is like the sixth movie now. And uh, we finally ended up watching Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I'd never seen before. This is a 1954 uh, universal horror classic. And uh, man, this movie is really goofy. Um, (laughs) Jacob, uh, Chris, I want you guys to chime in here because I know you guys are fans of like the universal horror monsters. Where do you think Creature from the Black Lagoon falls in like the the pantheon of these kinds of movies? Uh, Either one of you can just jump in. It's lower tier for me. I like this movie a lot. I love the creature design. I love a lot of what it's going for. But I actually think that the third film in this series is exceptional. <laughs> the Creature Walks Among Us is one of the best of the Universal Monster movies. It is tragic and weird and upsetting and humane. Whereas this one and its sequel are both pretty solid B-movies. But the Creature himself does not become a truly great Universal Monster until his third entry. By the third time, he's up there with Dracula and the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster for me. But this first one, it's a good, it's a good time. At, at, you know, you can imagine yourself the fifties drive-in, you know, watching and, and, and hollering, having a good time. Yep. But it, it lacks the air of gothic tragedy that defines Universal Monsters for me. But you, you find that in the third film, so I actually recommend Ben you seek out the Creature Walks Among Us. Do I have to see the second film to get there? Is it like an important bridge between the first and the third? Not in the slightest, no. Okay, uh, Chris, what do you make of the Creature from the Black Lagoon? Yeah, it's it's not my favorite. I. Uh... Yeah, I'm not going to everything I have to say is pretty much going to be the same thing as Jacob. So just pretend I said exactly what you just said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just found it to be like super cheesy and not really in the same way that like, you know, I watched uh, the mummy from 1950, 
whatever the the hammer version of the mummy and like you know there were horror movies that were being made at this time that are not um that are not quite as b movie and like over the top and ridiculous as this one was uh and i just i don't know maybe the the tone didn't really jive with whatever what i was expecting from it or something but um yeah, I mean, it, like the story is kind of silly too. Like the way that the scientists all behave, it's very um, <laughs> like it's sort of laughable. But uh, you know, I, I think like the underwater uh, filming stuff, like some of that, I'm sure must have been impressive for the time. This came out in the mid '50s, and like you know, TV was just becoming like a mainstream thing at that point. And uh, my wife and I were actually reading about one of the guys who was wearing the uh, the creature suit and. He was like 21 at the time and uh, they basically just sort of like he lucked into being one of the performers who was wearing the suit. And then he went on to like create the TV show Flipper and which had its own sort of underwater stuff, um, you know, filming techniques and stuff like that um, later on. And he he sort of like became like a uh, like a journeyman uh, filmmaker who used that expertise that he, he learned originally from this, from working on this movie to like build a, a solid career of his own later on. So I thought that was interesting, but, and then also like some of this movie was shot in silver Springs, which was the, um, the place that I talked about going, I don't know, a month or two ago, uh, on the podcast. So I thought that was kind of cool to see like the old Florida, um, you know, moss hanging from the trees, like crystal clear lakes and, and rivers and streams and stuff like that. Um, so it was, it was nice to see on that regard, but in terms of like this being, yeah, one of the, one of the big, you know, universal classics, I sort of was like, Oh, well, maybe, maybe not for me, but it's a case uh, of me being like, more famous than good. Like I think the, yeah. I think the creatures are rightfully famous. I think the creature is great movie around him is not as strong as other universal movies and i and i feel like people uh lumped them all together uh because they're all universal monsters and or you know horror movies made by universal uh but this creature he really exists outside the pantheon he's made years after the heyday of the rest of the, of the movies and the rest of the characters he really is an outlier and that's why uh, to me it's always so strange and he's part of that family until you see a third film, then he'll get it. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, and then uh, speaking of sort of like cheesy 1950s horror movies, I also watched House on Haunted Hill for the first time. This is directed by William Castle and it stars Vincent Price. And he plays this millionaire who invites uh, a bunch of people into his house and says, uh, you know, this is a haunted house. Uh, I'm going to lock us in. And if you stay here, overnight i'm gonna give you ten thousand dollars basically um so it's a pretty simple premise but um and and like you know things start to go wrong and and uh people start dying and uh are the ghosts actually real are they an elaborate hoax like what's going on here um i I thought this was uh, a lot more fun to watch than um creature from the black lagoon but uh i I don't know (laughs) i don't know if I could like uh, make a blanket recommendation for this movie, because I think you sort of have to be in the right mood to be able to watch this one. Um, I know it's been remade, you know, at least once uh, in 1999. Um, and I remember seeing that movie like in the theaters and being maybe scared of that when I was very young and thinking <laughs> like looking back on it now, I'm like, maybe, maybe I need to watch that version again and see just to sort of compare the two. But uh, as, as, as like a 1950s cheesy B movie horror film goes, I thought house on Hunter Hill was pretty fun. Um, Jacob, Chris, do you guys know, have any thoughts about this one? I, I don't know if this is like in your wheelhouse as much. When it's, I it's... first joined slash film, I was instructed to make my top 10 films of all time. This is number 10. Wow. Oh, man. So this is definitely in your uh, house. House in Haunted Hill. No movie better smells like, tastes like, sounds like, and looks like Halloween to me. No film <laughs> better feels like a, better feels like a cool autumn breeze. No film smells like pumpkin. 
no film feels more innocently spooky. It is the kind of movie you can show a five-year-old and they'll be terrified of it. You can laugh along with it as an adult because it's intentionally funny. The dialogue uh, that, uh, it, 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 all throughout the script is so sharp and so funny. The performances are so self-aware and so charming and devious. I think the movie's an absolute blast. And it's so, it's so aware that it's a low-budget B-movie like it plays both the lowest common denominator and to like the highbrows who are aware of what that's aware. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's great. I love this movie. How do you feel about the remake? It's okay. It's, it loses the humor. It's fine. Okay. I'm just curious about that. Uh, Chris, where do you fall on this one? Uh, I don't like it as much as Jacob. Let's put it that way, but it's, <laughs> it's fun. And I like the remake too. I think the remake actually is pretty funny. It's, it's got some humor, although it's, it's a lot more, uh, extreme it's a lot more r-rated but i i i like both versions really um i thought vincent price was really like the standout of this and that sort of like sly smirk that he has i think that speaks to what you're talking about jacob where like everybody is very aware of the kind of movie that they're making and his relationship with his wife in this movie where they are basically like at each other's throats but like in a nice way almost they're like trying to kill each other with kindness but then like maybe literally kill each other oh, at they certain hate each other so much um, it's so good <laughs> I love that relationship. And I, it, part of it, like at a certain point in the movie, I was like, I wonder if the hus if, if uh, Vincent Price and his wife are in on this whole thing together. And like, they just do this every Halloween and bring a bunch of people into this mansion and orchestrate these elaborate things and, and just kill people. And like, this is part of their, you know, bizarre dynamic as a married couple. And now I kind of want to see that movie. So uh, I don't know, might be something worth thinking about next time you watch it, Jacob, just throw that on and, and sort of have that going in your, in your head. But. Yeah, for sure. I will. The remake's worth watching specifically because um, uh, Jeffrey Rush, uh, plays Vincent Price as his character. He has the same mustache, same hairstyle. He does a, a sort of de- his delivery is of the same cadence. It's huh. the movie's fun for its own ways, but Jeffrey Rush is, is a hoot playing Vincent Price. Okay, all right. Uh, and then finally, the I, I watched the first two episodes of Ted Lasso, which is streaming on Apple TV Plus. I think for about two weeks now, I've been hearing this slow trickle on the internet of people going, you know what? Ted Lasso is pretty good. And I just eventually, you know, finally sort of like caved into it. And I, the thing the, that I primarily heard about it was that it was a very nice show. And I was like, you know what? I could do for a, a nice new show. And uh, man, I'm I'm after two episodes. I think there are eleven episodes in the first season. After just the first two, I'm fully on board with this, and I really think this is a show that actually lives up to the hype that I've been seeing over the past couple weeks. Um, I don't remember if anybody here on the podcast has talked about this in in that time period. If one of you was one of the you know many voices in the the choir of uh, <laughs> singing Ted Lasso's praises that I've heard over the, over the past couple weeks, but. Um, Man, I really, really enjoyed the show and would definitely recommend it to anybody so far. I'm, I'm not sure how it, uh, you know, how it wraps up or whether or not it's satisfying, but in terms of um, just putting you in a, a good place with a, a really nice character played by Jason Sudeikis, and um, there's a lot of jokes that that work really well for me uh, so far. I'm, I'm really digging Ted Lasso, so that's on Apple TV Plus, and uh, I think that's it for me. Um, Unless anybody has anything to say about Ted Lasso, has anybody else watched this that I didn't remember? I've Every seen the same wave. Be group is, sorry, Brad, you go ahead. I, I cut this out, Ben. Sorry. That's <laughs> no, fine. No, I, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to say the same thing anyway. It's just that this, you know, I, I've heard the, the same kind of wave from people saying how good it is, and I, I now have been more inclined to watch it sooner than later. 
Yeah, it's great. So you guys should definitely check it out. And I will finally get around to watching Shit's Creek, which is another show that has sort of been the same thing. But now that it won all those Emmys, there's like the wave is now like a, a tidal wave. It's like a deep impact wave of people telling me to watch that show. So I'll, I'll get around to that one. But in the meantime, Ted Lasso was really, really good. So that's on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? I put it off for long enough. I finally started watching Star Trek Picard. And this is a rare case. I'm surprised it took you this long to watch it because Picard is like one of your favorite characters ever, right? He's my favorite fictional character of all time. And it took me a long time because I was intimidated by it. I was afraid to revisit Jean-Luc Picard in the year 2020. And I was afraid the show, which has certain names attached to it who have not created outstanding content in the past, like Akiva Goldsman, Alex Kurtzman. So I was, I didn't want to see a character I love, you know, tarnished and, the reaction to the show was so mixed. I mean, modern fandom of all kinds is going to be divisive on anything. And the, in the fandom, Star Trek fandom tends to be kinder than Star Wars fandom, but they're also no less forgiving toward the things they don't like. And the ones who didn't like Picard really did not like Picard. So I was very, very nervous about watching it. And now that I've been doing this, you know, podcast with HT, you know, tracking two times a base available in all the places you can get podcasts. Um, <laughs> I realized I want to watch more Star Trek. But I don't want to watch anything that's, you know, upcoming. I don't want to, I want to watch the latest thing so I can be prepared for it. So when we get there in 10 years or whenever we get around <laughs> to it. And it is very different. It is an incredibly different show. It is heavily serialized. The entire season is one story. Each episode doesn't really stand alone. There's no standalone adventures. It is very much like a 10 hour movie for better or worse. Sometimes better, sometimes worse based on the episode. And it has the nerve to a good nerve to put Picard in a bad place. It is 20 years or so after the events of Star Trek Nemesis when we last saw him and 15 years after something very, very, very bad happened in the Trek universe that forever tarnished Picard's reputation and led to him doing the unthinkable and resigning from Starfleet. And we catch up with him retired and a mystery ropes him in and he has to go on, on, a, on a quest essentially to solve it. And uh, it ties back into his past and ties and things he cares about. But he's in a position in his life and career where he's an old man in, in the, in the show Picard's in his nineties, uh, Patrick Stewart's in his late seventies in real life. And nobody takes him seriously. He's just, he's an old crank. He's the guy who was responsible for this disaster that happened, you know, 15 years earlier. And to watch a character I love a character of so much respect who commands so much empathy and love for me be brought down low and to see him have to rise again and stay true to himself, even though all of his resources are gone and literally have to do the right thing, even though literally nobody's there for him is really powerful and not in a way I was expecting. I was very moved by it. I think the plotting in the show is a little eh and the overarching mystery they're building is a little obvious. In fact, it feels more like mass effect the video game series and, and star Trek ever did. But Patrick Stewart is incredible and him willing to play a character who is so beloved in a way where he is brought low. I, I keep saying that because it's, I keep, I keep reminding him of how we did with Professor X and Logan, where he plays a powerful character who said everything taken away from him. It's a very, very similar situation, even though um, Picard is not as, in as much dire straits as Professor X was. Mm-hmm. But I think that in his old age, Patrick Stewart is proving himself as an actor to be so interested in age itself and what age does to powerful characters. And I don't know how the series wraps up yet, or the season wraps up. I've not seen the finale yet. But 
I am I'm on board just to watch Patrick Stewart be his character again. And there are some really cool things in in this series that it says what would the next generation universe be like 20 years after it ended and there are some really really cool developments and some really interesting ideas on what people will be doing with with the um wreckage of certain items from you know the series finale and the, the movies so that's star trek picard i'm watching it on blu-ray but it's available on cbs all access and if you're a trek fan like me who's nervous give it a shot you maybe you'll like it like i did maybe you'll be angry like other people are but at this point there's so much trek on right now like they have there's three shows on, ongoing another one in development there's, there's gonna be there's gonna be a flavor for you there's gonna be, if you don't like one show maybe another one will appeal to you so go for it all right, that's Star Trek Picard. Chris, uh, we've been talking about murder mysteries and you know haunted mansions and things of that sort. Uh, you have been watching The Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh, uh, yeah, I watched The Haunting of Bly Manor. I actually watched it a long time ago. I got the screeners, I think, like two months ago, which is very weird because it just came out. So I was, I've was i been sitting on it. But now that it's out, I can talk about it. Uh, I, I reviewed it. I actually reviewed it. There are two reviews. There's a regular review and a spoiler review. So I won't go too long on my thoughts. But... Uh, I was a little disappointed. I, I loved The Haunting of Hill House. I thought it was uh, a great series. You know, it definitely strays heavily from Shirley Jackson's novel. And that kind of took me off guard when I first watched it. But once I got over that, you know, I just loved what the show did. I'm, I'm a big fan of Mike Flanagan. I, I love how he sort of balances these, you know, emotional uh, moments with horror. It, he he kind of has like the market corner on that right now. He's very good at that. So I was really looking forward to Bly Manor, which uh, has some of the same actors, even though it's a new story. And I was just a little let down by it, honestly. And I seem to be in a minority there because I'm seeing so many people being like, ah, oh, this is a masterpiece. And I, I really don't think so. Um, and I really think the problem is it doesn't have a distinct voice uh, tying it all together. You know, I, I don't want to get, you know, I know TV and, and film, obviously there are, it's, it's a collaborative art and a lot of people work to make something happen. But the, you know, the first season, Mike Flanagan directed all of those episodes and this season he only directs one and then the rest he hands off to other directors and the other directors are good and they do a good job with what they have. But I was really missing that that through line. I was missing that that one voice sort of behind the camera tying it all together. And I also feel like there there's just too much going on, which is just a weird thing to say, I guess, because obviously they have to fill those episodes. But I didn't really care as much about the, the subplots as I did with with Hill House. With Hill House, I cared about every single character. You know, Hill House is about the Crane family. and I cared about every single member of that family. And this season, I really didn't give a shit about a lot of the, the supporting players. I was like, I don't like there's a there's a storyline involving Henry Thomas's character. And I won't give it away in case people haven't seen it yet. But every time they cut to it, I was like, boy, I really don't care about this. I wish they would stop focusing on this and get back to the, the Bly Manor stuff. So, again, I, I seem to be in the minority there and that's fine. But I, I didn't love this as much as I was hoping to. But I, you know, I hope there's another season. I hope, you know, I, I hope there's more. I hope Mike Flanagan comes back and brings some of the same people back because I'll always be interested in seeing what they had to do. But I, I was definitely let down with this season. Chris, how did they deal with the source material of Turn of the Screw? Like, is it as much of a departure as um, Hill House is? It's actually a lot. I mean, it eventually sort of changes things, but it's a lot closer to the source material than Hill House. Um, and they also throw in a bunch of other Henry James stories, which 
I also think kind of hurts things a lot because they're, again, they're trying to do too much. But as far as Turn of the Screw, it's it's fairly faithful, I think, until like the last three episodes. And it's like, by the way, we're going to change everything. But be- until it gets there, it stays pretty close other than, you know, it, it's set in the 80s rather than, you know, the 1800s and stuff like that. But it's 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 a pretty close adaptation. Well, I'm sorry to hear that uh, it didn't quite, uh, you know, make an impact on you in the same way that Hill House did, Chris. But uh, Haunting of Blind Manor, is that uh, streaming for everybody on Netflix right now? Yep, it's it's available for everyone. Everyone can watch it. I'm sure a lot of people right. have binged it by now. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, HG, let's go to you. What have you been watching? Uh, I've been watching another Haunted House movie uh, called House, the 1977 Japanese comedy horror movie directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi. Um, This is a movie that I've seen, you know, various screenshots and stills of on film Twitter because it is somewhat of a cult classic uh, for how out outsized and bizarre and demented the imagery is and it truly is a demented haunted house movie it uh, follows a group of schoolgirls who um go to visit one of the classmates um aunt's country home uh where they uh face supernatural events and are picked off one by one uh by the house which devours them and uh it's uh <laughs> it's surreal it's uh hallucinogenic it's kaleidoscopic and bizarre of the highest fashion and um it it feels like a movie that is like adjacent to exploitation films it never quite goes like fully into the exploitation genre i'm sure there's an argument that it is like exploitation but it's a it's a really really crazy (laughs) horror movie and um i i feel i'm sure that chris has seen this before at least jacob and chris have have uh have you guys seen this movie this movie rules. It's so good. <laughs> uh, Chris, have you seen House or Houseu? I sure have. It's a crazy movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so insane, and um, I I feel like there's I can't really do justice by explaining what happens, but um, you know, one girl gets eaten by a piano uh, while she's playing the piano. It eats her fingers first, and she kind of just stares at her fingers, and the fingers, I think, start playing the piano, and then it, it eats her like it's one, you know, giant mouth, and at one point, there, there's a lot of floating and floating torsos, often naked torsos, and you're like, oh, that's kind of weird because they're Japanese schoolgirls, um, and uh, an evil uh, cat, a girl who is called Kung Fu, who is very good at Kung Fu, who keeps losing her pants. Uh, it's just a very wild and buck wild bloodbath. And uh, it's streaming now on, um, I think I watched it on HBO Max. Yes, I watched it on HBO Max. So you can watch it now uh, and just in time for spooky season. <laughs> so it sounds like maybe uh, one that you should not grab your entire family and <laughs> watch around the couch with. Yeah, it's not really family friendly, but definitely one to watch with your friends after or during having during while having a few drinks. Yeah. Uh, what else have you been watching? I watched Undine, which is the the new film by Christian Petzolt, uh, director of Transit, which was one of um, my favorite films last year. It was kind of a a surreal spin on uh, Casablanca. This one is uh, more of a mythic. Uh, magical realism tale. Uh, it tells the story of a woman who, um, after having a horrible breakup with her with her boyfriend, um, 
starts a new relationship with this industrial diver. And uh, she may or may not be a mermaid who is um, connected to the sea in some form or another. And it's very, very haunting and moody tale, uh, a lot more opaque than I think some of Pitzolt's last films. And um, the it's much more melodramatic too. It very much um, centers on this like very very passionate romance between uh, Undine, the, the title character, uh, played by Paula Beer, who uh, starred in Transit, and Kristoff, who also co-starred in Transit opposite her. But it, you know, it just hit all my buttons. I ate up all the uh, mythic magical realism uh, and the contemporary spin. And uh, I absolutely love this movie. And uh, that's Undine. This was actually the last film I watched in the New York Film Festival. And um, don't know if it'll be available to watch um, stateside in a while, but that's uh, Christian Petzolt's latest film. But there is one thing that you watch that is coming to uh, you know wide uh, wide viewability on Netflix soon, right? Yes, I watched Over the Moon, which is uh, Disney legend Glenn Keane's directorial debut. Uh, it is coming to Netflix on October twenty third, and it follows a young Chinese girl who believes in the myth of the goddess. Um, in the moon and decides to prove her family, her disbelieving family wrong by building a rocket ship to the moon and me- meeting this mythical goddess. And um, it's, it's all right. Um, I was pretty, I was pretty highly anticipating this film because I love Glenn Keane. He has created some of the most iconic um, Disney characters such as Ariel, uh, Tarzan, uh, various other Disney animated characters from the Disney Renaissance. And um, I was excited to see what he would do with his um, future directorial debut. And um, it comes from uh, the same studio, uh, Pearl Studio, that did Abom- Abominable. And I kind of got similar, similar feeling to uh, what I had, what I came away with from Abominable, in that it felt very much like a film with a an agenda, um, mm. and not so not so much a, um, a malicious one per se, but one that, uh, for example, is about trying to encourage girls to pick up STEM uh, in the way that Abominable wanted to encourage people to tour the beautiful landscapes of China. Mm-hmm. And um, while there was a nice um, Disney-esque sheen to it, that Disney kind of sincerity that Glenn Keane brought, especially in this film being a musical and it having a lot of those same beats and narrative structure of a Disney musical, an I Want song, a, um, a um, just genuine authenticity to it that you see in the character of Fei-Fei played by um, newcomer Kathy Ang. And, um, but it just felt, I guess, incomplete in some ways. Uh, it is, it does have this really beautiful like glimmers of um, depth to it, especially in the way that it uh, addresses the idea of grief and um, not being able to move on from grief and kind of having that holds you back in your life. And I think that is somewhat rooted in the screenplay by Audrey Wells. Uh, Audrey Wells is the screenwriter for The Hate You Give, and she passed away from cancer uh, in 2018, uh, shortly after she was tapped to write this film. So it felt very much like it's rooted in her experiences. So there is some real good emotional like 
bones to this film um mm. but it just feels a just feels a little incomplete and a little bit too again like it's just trying to sell something um in a way but um the music's good uh philippa su plays the uh moon goddess Chang'e, who is a more of a, a pop a diva type of spin on the the character so that was kind of fun um so it has it has good moments but um it's mostly just okay unfortunately <laughs> but that's coming to netflix on october 23rd streaming program. okay what else uh the next movie i watched was lupin the third the first um this one i was actually a little bit skeptical about because this is the first cg animated take on lupin the third who um as you might have heard from previous conversations about this is sort of a Japanese icon and Japanese institution. He is a character created by the, this manga author Monkey Punch in the 1960s um, and is somewhat related to the um, French novelist uh, character Arsène Lupin, who is a gentleman thief. Uh, Arsène Lupin III is a master thief who is more along the lines of James Bond meets Casanova wannabe and is very silly, very sexy, very dashing, and was the um, the subject of Hayao Miyazaki's first directorial debut. I'm talking about a lot about directorial debuts in this, um, but uh, Castle of Cagliostro was um, a Lupin the Third film, and it was Hayao Miyazaki's first feature film. And um, this movie, Lupin the Third, the first, um, actually pays a lot of homage to Castle of Cagliostro. I have an interview with director Takashi Yamazaki that can be read on Slash Film right now, and he talks about how he took inspiration from Miyazaki's film especially in its globe-trotting scale, its whimsy, its nostalgia, and tries to bring that into 3D animation. And he he succeeds. This is probably the best realization of anime in 3D CG animation that I've seen. It's um, It manages to retain the style and the spirit of the original uh, character and the original anime like manga style um, while being... Um, in that sort of CG bombast territory. It feels very tactile and big and yet somewhat grounded, um, but so stylized, um, but not in a way that feels a little bit uncanny. It feels just like very um, enough, exaggerated enough, but a little bit realistic uh, that it just, it sings off the screen. And it reminded me a lot of um, what Steven Spielberg did with Tintin, with Tintin, <laughs> to say it correctly. <laughs> um, and in the way that um, he manages to... Uh, capture and pay homage to the original art style while doing something new and boundary pushing and animate and cutting edge animation and felt so like something you can't really do achieve in live action and Lupin III the first uh manages to achieve that as well so uh this is coming to um select U.S. theaters October 18th and 21st in both dub and subtitles um and will also be hitting digital um, VOD on December 15th, followed by a home video release on Blu-ray, Steelbook, etc. on January 12th, 2021. So uh, that's the third, the first, and I highly recommend it. HG, this sounds like it would be a really bizarre experience to watch something like this. Mm -hmm. Like, have you ever seen an anime uh, property or, or something that you, I guess, primarily knew from anime translated into that 3D animation before and have it work? I know that you said that, like, this is like the, you know, one of the best uh, sort of 
I don't know if you want to call it like a medium jump that you've ever seen um, in, in that regard. But like, is, is there any precedent for this that you can think of? Um, the only other um, example I can think of is Beastars on Netflix, which is done in CG animation, but it also has a blend of all these other animation styles like stop motion and hand-drawn animation, which feels more like a fusion. Um, but it is primarily in CG animation, but it also has that kind of a little bit re- almost um, – removed feeling that isn't quite as I feel like grounded as this I feel like Lupin the Third has a really good uh combination or merger of those two styles Beastars is intentionally a little bit um artistically I don't know how to describe it but just kind of striking in that (laughs) way um but I will say this is yeah Lupin the Third is by far the most successful Beastars uh, does look great, um, and it's a very different art style. Um, but Netflix has been has been trying to do this sort of CG animated anime for a while, and none of it looks good, especially the Godzilla films, which are an eyesore. They look awful. <laughs> yeah, did it take you a second to really like get into this one because it's so stylistically different from the two D stuff before, or were you like immediately pulled into it and was, sort of surprised yeah, by? I was immediately pulled in. I wouldn't say it was a, a difficult transition for me, just because it feels like they somehow were able to translate that 2D animation style into 3D. And Mm -hmm. I think, too, it's because the original animation style is very much based in that 60s art style that isn't quite as um, anime, as modern anime, if if that makes sense. There's there's a difference between the 60s style, which more resembles even the animation of Western... um, animation at the time it's a little bit broader uh, it's not quite as as stylized as modern anime is uh so i think that is what helped make the transition to 3d so much smoother hmm. all right and then you've been watching one more thing right yes uh i rewatched batman returns it's actually been a long time since i've rewatched this film i think i watched it back in high school and um it was we my roommate and I who's she's moving out uh, this weekend so it was kind of a, a last watch a last hurrah for us. We were discussing whether Batman Returns co- um, qualifies as a Christmas movie for no reason. We're just discussing this, um, maybe for a reason that I will speak of in the future. <laughs> um, but um, before I get into you know my opinion of Batman Returns, which is you know great, perfect, uh, love this movie. Uh, would you guys um, describe Batman Returns as a Christmas movie? You can open this can of worms right now, HT. Are we going <laughs> to do this? It. We're doing it. It is not a Christmas movie. It's a movie set at Christmas. I've made this distinction many times. <laughs> um, so it opens, a Chris, on, it opens at Christmas time. A, There's a Christmas tree like very prominently throughout this movie like the climax of the movie is around the lighting of this christmas tree and um at the end alfred says merry christmas mr wayne (laughs) and it it is very much centered around the christmas season it feels like it takes place in the week before christmas um there's that that sexy mistletoe line too and that sexy mistletoe uh yeah exactly between bruce and selena so everyone else it's it's a christmas movie yeah (laughs) okay i thought i i thought i'd seen you uh espouse that opinion before (laughs) 
I'm sorry, Jacob. I think you've been overruled here. I don't know. No, also, Christmas movie, 12 Monkeys. That's another Christmas movie. If we want to open this can of worms, you want to have this fight, I will have this fight. I think that an hour and five minutes into a podcast on a work day is not the time to have this fight. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll hold it until closer to the Christmas season and then rehash it again. All right, so. all right. That's fair. Die Hard, also not a Christmas movie. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, not a Christmas movie. Lethal Weapon, not a Christmas movie. Uh, anyways, Batman Returns. Those Great movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh so batman returns um hg is this on hbo max is that where yes, you watched it i watched it on hbo okay. max cool all right let's go into what we've been eating brad what have you been eating recently um just a couple things that i was able to try this week um taco bell has a, another one of their new flavored freezes uh this one is dragon fruit and um my, my girlfriend and i both like the uh the dragon fruit mango refreshers that they have at uh starbucks and um this is pretty much like that. The The mango doesn't have like a strong overwhelming flavor in those. And since it's not in the dragon fruit freezer taco, Bell, you don't really notice it. Um, and it's, it's, you know, because it's a freeze, it's also just a generally cool, refreshing drink. Um, probably more enjoyable during the summer. Now that it's getting into fall, it's not, you know, uh, necessarily a, a seasonal drink, but it is pretty good. Um, I'm, I haven't really had a bad uh, freeze from Taco Bell. They're, the flavors they've gone with have been pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. And then I tried a new cereal uh, that was just okay. Um, it is uh, a Funfetti cereal, which is, as we all know, Funfetti being the, the kind of cupcakes that have, like, colorful speckles in them that they refer to as Funfetti. And uh, it is, it's definitely has the, the taste of that. It's, it's essentially like Kix, but if it had, like some some of those kind of like sprinkles uh in it but what what makes it lack i guess the the signature funfetti flavor is that it's missing the like the frosting flavor aspect to it which for me is like you have funfetti frosting on funfetti cupcakes and then you have double the funfetti uh you can you can trademark that if you want to um pillsbury (laughs) but um yeah so it's pretty good it's not not as good as i was hoping but uh it was fairly enjoyable i guess i would say Okay, uh, let's go into what we've been playing. I have been playing an album that comes out soon. It's called Michael Giacchino and his Nouvelle Modernica Orchestra's Travelogue Volume 1. So that is quite a mouthful. This is the debut non, uh, non-soundtrack non album from Michael Giacchino, who is the Oscar-winning composer. You all have heard his work many, many times. Uh, this is the first album that he's ever released that doesn't have anything to do with a movie. And it's really interesting. It is a concept album about an alien who leaves her planet because she feels like her planet is sort of broken and dying and uh i guess society has has fallen into a state of disrepair where she wants to travel the the universe and see if there's something else better out there and she comes across earth and at first uh, thinks that she's found you know, a, a, um, a wonderland, basically, like the, the exact place that she's been looking for, and then realizes that things are a little bit more complicated than they seem. And that, uh, you know, we have our fair share of problems here on Earth as well. Um, the music itself is so so a, a person, I think he came up with the story, somebody else wrote the quote unquote script for this. And the, the scripted parts are basically just like an actress at the beginning of each track, um, narrating as if she is this alien, you know, uh, on these adventures throughout Earth. And so the the narration goes on for, I don't know, let's say a minute or something at the start of each track. And then the rest of each track 
uh, is just like instrumental music, the kind of orchestral stuff that he is known for. Um, and the music is really, really cool. It's like, a, you know, 50s, 60s uh, lounge kind of music, like a, a jazzy kind of, um, I don't know, like a lounge lizardy kind of vibe. Um, there's some, some uh, interesting twists throughout the story. Um, but for the most part, it's just a really sort of relaxing, cool, like it, it feels like, uh, a throwback to the type of music that is not certainly not in the mainstream of American popular culture right now. Um, so as somebody who has, you know, loved Michael Giacchino's work for a long time and, and loves his, uh, film scores, this is a definitely an interesting, um, sort of departure from that. And it's, it's really interesting to think about, okay, like who is Michael Giacchino as an artist? Because we know that he has taken, you know, all of these different pieces of intellectual property and, and synthesized them into, you know, brand new scores and, and, you know, paid homage to a bunch of different styles and stuff, you know, with all this work that's been attached to things. But this being, you know, his first non-soundtrack album really feels like, okay, this is who he is as a storyteller, as a, a creator in his own right. And like, it's so fascinating to think about like, okay, this guy could have done anything he wanted. And this is what he did, a sort of like elaborate, um, you know, really almost like a niche uh, concept album about an alien. And it's really like this immigrant story about like, you know, when will it stop mattering where each of us came from and why can't we all just, uh, you know, work together to, to function in the same society and the same society. Um, but there's like a hopefulness that, that permeates the narrative, even though there's some violence and some, some uh, destruction that happens along the way. Um, but ultimately it sort of ends on this uplifting note and there's some really relaxing music in here, some really cool, like, you know, uh, propulsive jazzy stuff. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend giving this a shot. If you're a fan of his film scores, I'm not sure if this is going to be like, you know, uh, number one on the billboard charts, like mainstream America is going crazy for <laughs> the new Michael Cicchino album. But, um, for, for the people who are listening to this podcast and people who love, you know, film scores and film music, um, I, I think you're going to find a lot to like in this. So this uh, new album, which again is called Michael Giacchino and his Nouvelle Modernica Orchestra Travelogue Volume 1 comes out on October 30th. So uh, that is what I have been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? I've been visiting the game Massive Chalice, which I played by PC. And it's about five years old. And I haven't played it in about five years since it first came out. And I had a strange itch for it the other day. So I fired it back up, put another like 10 to 15 hours into it. And it's a really interesting strategy game. We play as the immortal king of a fantasy kingdom. And you're being invaded by forces of darkness and monsters and whatnot. And you have to manage a kingdom, manage various districts, build castles and keeps. And fight out the monsters in these strategy sequences to send out your troops to fight them. But the unique thing is that in order to recruit more troops, you have to have them specially trained to fight these monsters. So that means you have to uh, arrange marriages between your soldiers who can then birth and train their children to be specialized to fight monsters. So you're managing all these different keeps full of castles. And it's like, oh, this person's a, a really serious, skilled hunter. This person's really skilled at explosives. If I if I had them marry, their kids could be trained to be explosive hunters. And you could, so you're literally managing these family trees and trying to keep these families, you know, strong together and you know constantly <laughs> constantly pumping out children to feed your armies it's a big just really strange uh uh like strategy game we, the, the actual fighting in the game we, we your armies go out and you control them and you fight the monsters is only okay I, I wish it was better uh but the meta game of of <laughs> trying of everybody in a family dying out 
and you having to uh, put a two-year-old on the throne, then realizing 20 years later the two-year-old is, is infertile, it can never have children, and you have to wait 70 years for, for them to die so you can have someone else create more people from your army. Wow. It's a really unique, terrible, amazing feeling. I don't think any game's ever quite captured what Massive Chalice does. So that's it's like 20 bucks. It's available on PC and Mac. I, I like it a lot. It's a lot of fun. Okay, wow, that, I did not see that coming. Uh, all right, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all of these stories that we mentioned on today's show. I'm going to link a bunch of things in the show notes, including an interview that I did with Clint Manzel, the, the composer of Rebecca, which I forgot to talk about. Uh, but we'll put Chris's Rebecca review and the Bly Manor review and uh, a link to Trekking uh, Through Time and Space. You can, you can find that there. Uh, so just check your show notes if you want to know about any of the stuff that we've been talking about. And go to SlashFilm.com. I encourage you all to do that every day multiple times a day just you know fire it up go check and see all the stuff that we're writing all the time you can subscribe to the show on itunes google Podcasts, overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps and send your feedback questions comments and concerns to us at peter at slash make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air and don't forget to rate and review the podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you guys on monday ben i have a question uh, yes, Jacob. Is it more? Is it is it funnier if I opened up the Gantrian book of insult, offense, and effrontery, sharp retorts for posts, classic quips, in by put downs by Louis A. Safian, insulted all of you right now? Or is it funnier if I close it and not read any insults because Peter's not here and he hates it the most? <laughs> I think the latter. Uh, yeah, I think the latter as well. All right. This is sounding like me closing the book. You've all been spared. <laughs>